Now I'm pleased to introduce the first of our two closing keynote sessions at the 2015 <laughs> Texas Tribune Festival, a conversation, yeah. but you at the very end, a conversation about the presidential campaign. Several months ago, we decided to call this conversation Make 2016 Great Again. Though after this last week's Democratic debate, I'm thinking it should be retitled, The American People Are Sick and Tired of Hearing About Your Damn Election. <laughs> you like that one better? I like that one better. Just imagine me saying that in Larry David's voice. Larry David as Bernie Sanders. If you have not seen that, best thing of the whole year. You have to, you have to Google that. Uh, of course, we did a conversation about the presidential election up on this stage last year, and why wouldn't we have done one? There was plenty to talk about a year ago on this race, and there's even more to talk about now. Given what we've seen in the last six months, could you possibly blame us for going back to the well? So I was thinking back to the discussion last year, and the prognostications and predictions and discussions of the race, of course, were a little off. So last year we had Jonathan Martin of the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, then of Politico, now of the New York Times, Nia Malika Henderson, then of the Washington Post, now of CNN, Chris Hayes, I guess there is still an MSNBC, right? So he still is at MSNBC. And Dave Weigel, who was between jobs at the time, I think, but is now back with the Washington Post, they were here with us. They could not have predicted that this race would be trumped and burned, right, over the last six months. But the conversation was the right conversation because the questions that we addressed and the themes that they discussed, that we all discussed, were the right questions and the right themes. And so we're going to take up a version of those again today, but with the knowledge of what's happened in the last six months informing us. Who are these candidates really? Which issues have risen to the surface that will ultimately determine this election? And of course, who's going to win? I, I won't ask Amy Chozik who's going to win because She's a reporter, and she can't actually predict we're, stuff. What, but the rest, we? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're snappers. No, in, inside joke. Um, our presidential campaign panel this year features a return appearance by the sublime Mr. Weigel on the end. And he is joined by three terrific and insightful observers of the political scene. Uh, before you meet them, I'll introduce them here. Let me say a word about our intended fifth panelist. In fact, she's in the book, but she's regrettably not with us today. You remember the great Esquire story by Gay Talese, Frank Sinatra has a cold? Well, let me introduce you to the sequel, Gwen Eiffel has pneumonia. Aww. Yes, I, I feel the exact same way. Uh, our old friend from PBS was to have joined us and at the last minute was told by her doctors that she couldn't fly. Uh, the only consolation I feel is that she is as sorry she's not here uh, as we are. She very much wanted to be, and I know we wish her well. Now, let me say a word about the great journalists who joined me on stage. We're out of order, but I'm going to start alphabetically with Amy Chozik. Amy Chozik is a national political reporter at the New York Times whose focus has been and is on Hillary Clinton. She's written about the Clinton since 2007 when she began covering the 2008 campaign for her previous employer, the Wall Street Journal. She spent the last four years at the Times and put in eight years at the Journal before that. She likes to say she began her career in journalism when she moved to New York with no job, no apartment, and a stack of clips from the Daily Texan. <laughs> yes, she is a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, and she is a native of San Antonio to boot, and I gather 15 or 20 of you are members of her family in the audience. <laughs> Amy Chosen. Um, Peter Hanby here in the middle is the head of news at Snapchat. For those of you above the age of 50, don't worry about what that is. Um, <laughs> it is a social media application that has been expanding its reach of late into video content created by news and entertainment organizations. He previously spent 10 years at CNN. That's how many of us got to know him. Originally eight as a national political reporter, including stints covering the 20, oh, uh, 2008 and 2012 presidential campaigns, two as a producer on The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. He is widely regarded, and I think correctly regarded, as one of the pioneers of all, using all digital tools, notably Twitter, in news gathering. A native of Richmond, Virginia, Peter has an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University and a master's from NYU. Ryan Lizza is the Washington correspondent for The New Yorker and an on-air contributor to CNN. He spent eight years at the last truly great magazine in America. It is truly a great magazine. And before that, put in nine years at the New Republic and time as a correspondent at GQ and as a contributing editor at New York Magazine. Since 1998, he's covered every major political story in the country, including four presidential campaigns. 
The nonprofit journalism guy in me wants to acknowledge that he began his career at the Center for Investigative Reporting. <laughs> Ryan has a degree from the University of California, Berkeley. Finally, welcome back to Dave Weigel, who earlier this year made a heralded return to his previous employer, The Washington Post, as a national reporter. He previously helped to launch the Bloomberg Politics site as a roving reporter who published his stuff in a section charmingly titled Department of Dave Weigel. <laughs> he, spent, he spent four years as a reporter for Slate, where he ran a political blog named, yes, Weigel. And he hosted a podcast. He's written about the American conservative movement for Reason Magazine and a host of other publications. He's a Delaware native and a graduate of Northwestern University. Go Wildcats. Please join me in welcoming all of our great panel. <laughs> so, Amy Chozik, Hillary Clinton was in your hometown of San Antonio this yeah. week. And she was ebullient. She received the endorsement of Secretary Julian Castro, who we'll see in a few uh, minutes or in about an hour from now, uh, uh, she was there to begin her effort on Latino outreach. This followed uh, the Democratic debate in which she is perceived to have either been the winner or the co-winner. Should she be ebullient at this point about her place in this race, as, as, as your coverage of her would tell you? I think she's certainly riding high off of that debate performance. I think they also think that her testimony on the Benghazi Commission next week could help them. That's, thir that's Thursday, right? right. Yeah. Could help them turn a corner over some of the email things. And I think that she was, she was still really riding high. Of course, Julian Castro was a big endorsement. She has a lot of affection in San Antonio. She loves to tell the story about how she worked for the McGovern campaign in the 70s registering voters in South Texas. And so I felt, I think she felt, you know, very high on this. But it's funny that you say you're not going to ask me to predict anything. I hope you wouldn't, because when I was assigned to her campaign in 2007, I'd just been a foreign correspondent, and I was like, oh, I'm assigned to Hillary Clinton, riding this right to the White House. You know, who's this Obama guy? Well, back then, so, right, yeah, <laughs> right. And so I think, you know, while I think they are having, the campaign is having a good week, who knows? And she's no more inevitable, in fact, this time, Amy, than she was last time, right? Right. I think a socialist Democrat from Vermont is showing that. Right. Uh, <laughs> but let me flip that around. Ryan, we're not going to nominate, this country is not going to nominate as the candidate of the Democratic Party a socialist from Vermont, is it? No. No. I mean, let's, 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 let's drop a little truth bomb on this conversation. For all no, the heat around yeah. Bernie Sanders, the likelihood of Bernie Sanders being the nominee of the Democratic Party is pretty small. Seems pretty small. I mean, I think you, you said that she's just she's not she's not as inevitable as she was in 08. Is that, is that, is or, 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 but <clears throat> she has an inevitability. I think it's a real legitimate question around whether she, she was any more inevitable. Is she any more inevitable now than she was? All right, then. let's look at her strengths and her weaknesses. Yeah. On one hand, she is the strongest Democratic front runner that the party has ever produced in the modern era. Right. Since full, they, full, non incumbent. Yeah. Non incumbent. Strongest non incumbent. Oh, I think she's uh, as strong or stronger than Gore in 2000. Oh, oh non-incumbent, yeah, 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 not, yes, the non-incumbent, excuse me, in an open primary. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the history of these races, um, they, the, 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 the establishment frontrunner always draws a challenger on the left, right? In the Democratic Party, you can get 20 to 30 percent uh, in an open primary by running to the left of whether it's Walter Mondale in the 80s, whether it's Al Gore in 2000, a little bit of a different race, but John, right. running against John, Howard Dean, running against John Kerry, right? We see this dynamic every single time, Obama against Hillary in 2008, right? right? The challenger insurgent candidate in the Democratic Party never, ever, ever wins until 2008, Barack Obama comes along and he sort of picks the lock. He figures out how to do this. Right. How did he do it? He went, those previous candidates, Gary Hart, Bill Bradley, Howard Dean, they basically were factional candidates who could get 20 to 30 percent nationally from, uh, you know, white liberals, right? That's the, that, yeah. the sort of educated white liberal base in the Democratic Party that will always go to that candidate. Obama figured out a way to broaden that and steal non-white voters from the establishment candidate, right? And so when the primaries moved south, he was very, very strong starting in South Carolina. Does Bernie Sanders have the potential to put together that kind of coalition like Barack Obama did, or is he much more like Gary Hart or Bill Bradley? I think right. most people think, you know, the, the, the latter. Right. I Ryan, that's an interesting, I, I hadn't heard Howard Dean's name in a while, but in fact, that's an interesting way to think about this race. Is Bernie Sanders Howard Dean or Barack Obama? Same state. Yeah, I think. Same I think, state. That's I right. think we know which one he is. Yeah. But, um, but having said all that, yeah. and then Hillary Clinton's obviously, she obviously has more of the power centers of the Democratic Party behind her when you look at elected officials, endorsements, right. unions, all the rest, than anyone since Gore. Gore is probably the last person yeah. that had 
that kind of lock on the party infrastructure. Having said all of that, she has these two incredible vulnerabilities in Iowa and New Hampshire that will make this right. race incredibly interesting. P Peter, that, 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 is, that is the question. So what happens at the beginning of this race, and does it somehow upturn momentum, or does it upturn expectations for the outcome? Um, well, so two points. Just to follow yeah. up on the, on the Bernie thing, another important difference with, with Obama is beyond the, the raw talent and the inclusive message is just the fundamentals, the organizational power. The Clinton campaign is exceptionally strong um, in that respect. In Iowa, in New Hampshire, they're starting to build out other states because I think they're afraid of what you're talking about, possibly yep. losing those first two states. The Sanders campaign has the raw energy, but you know, if you if you talk to them and observe them on the ground, it's still a little slapdash in some ways. Um, you know, the Obama campaign was thinking three steps ahead and getting organized in caucus states, looking down the calendar past Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, the Sanders campaign is only now sort of staffing up in places like South Carolina, which is right. third on the calendar. So, but they've but Sanders has raised a lot of money. He raised a bunch of money after that sure, debate. But you have to get people to go to a caucus. You have to get people to show up. You have, and to, that's about organization. And it's you about have to secure superdelegates, which the Clinton camp has been very aggressive right. about. I mean, you're going to have Julian on soon. They've been very aggressive at getting elected officials committed and committed early. I mean, they yeah. could switch, but I don't see the Sanders campaign securing that kind of right. those kinds of endorsements. Well, Dave, it sounds like. Yeah. This race is over. Well, there are, there are <laughs> we didn't ways. say that. I think I feel like I wasn't completely wrong about everything last year, but <laughs> I was one of the people who definitely said that she's inevitable. I still think that. I think it, it, some things that are different about this year. One establishment of the Democratic Party, which was looking for a Hillary alternative in 2007, is perfectly fine with her. Has been fine with her. Bernie Sanders has two endorsements from members of Congress who are both progressives and safe seats. Uh, no senators. Their party establishment. I mean, Claire McCaskill, who really was almost like a skullduggery expert in how she went after, went against Hillary, has been with her and been against Bernie this whole time. Right. And also, the party's less. The party base, I think, is less confident of winning compared to 2007, when George Bush was such an dis obvious disaster that it looked like he could shoot the moon and choose an inspiring African American candidate with a middle name. Hussein. That was something you couldn't imagine in 2004. Something you could. I don't think you could even quite imagine now with the, the way the dynamics have shifted. So the dynamic so, was different. Yeah. Now, I think you made a very important point. The people who were not with Secretary Clinton in 08 right. and were with uh, Sen then-Senator Obama have made peace with the idea, many of them have made peace with being with her. Yeah, uh, there's more desperation now. I think Democrat Democrats are generally panicking. I think the natural state of Democrats is panic. One, show one poll shows Hillary losing Pennsylvania by one point. Therefore, we need Joe Biden in the race. Al Gore in the race. But I remember I was talking right. to um, Barney Frank about this a couple of weeks ago. And the reason he thought that, not just that Bernie wouldn't succeed, but that it was selfish for anyone else to get in the race and hurt the party is, look, if you're comfortable, if the, the worst thing's going to happen if a Republican's president is that uh, you're going to, you know, you're going to have really irritating uh, Thanksgivings with your family or, you, you, you know, the... I'm trying to think of just you know, generic ways you'll be irritated about by the country's going, then yeah, you can fool around with this. But if your health clinic is going to shut down, if you're going to be prevented from voting, he was listing a litany of things that Democrats fear would happen if Republicans ran all three branches of government. These Republicans, not the yeah. 2000 Bush Republicans, but these Republicans. And I think because they had such a good 2014, there's still some fear in the establishment of the party and some of that base that right. really, look at North Carolina, South Carolina, places where when Republicans took every level of government, they started, they prevented Medicaid expansion. They, they just hurt them in ways that I think make them not inclined to flirt with a, a riskier candidate. Even though right now, I should yeah. say, Bernie Sanders polls better than her in trial heats, they just don't quite believe that because he's never had a punch So they may her. not yeah. love her, but in the end, they're going to come home because the alternative is, yeah. is worse. Amy, you mentioned the Benghazi hearing, which is on Thursday. This is obviously one of two things that has trailed Secretary Clinton around this whole campaign, to their consternation, but it has indeed the emails are the other. We'll get right. to that in a second. I understand that Kevin McCarthy and now Richard Hanna, the congressman from New York, have both said basically this Benghazi investigation, the committee has been largely an effort to drive her poll numbers down. There is still risk, is there not, to this hearing for her? 
Well, Kevin McCarthy gave them a big gift. I mean, and they're and they're playing. The campaign is definitely playing up how politicized this is. But of course, there's any, any there's she is very good at answering questions in this format. The way she is very good at a debate, and so I think the advantages are on her. But of course, there's always risks. I mean, she could have another moment of what difference does it make? You know, during the Benghazi right. hearings that went that went viral. But I do think they're hoping this can turn the page. And I would say that the emails in Benghazi are completely conflated now. I mean, the Benghazi. Do you think they are conflated? I mean, it turned into the emails. I think that that you know that it's right. much more about that now. Um, and I would also say that I think the average you know voter in Ohio is not paying attention to the intricacies of like Kevin McCarthy's statements about the Benghazi Commission. I think. All of this in the news, it takes away from her message. It, she's rolling out really substantive policies every week or so. I mean, really intricate policies. And no one's, you know, it's just emails are covering, are, right. are surpassed. What is her right. message? Well, that's a good, <laughs> I think, you know what, I think in the debate, she like stumbled upon this, I'm a progressive yeah. who gets things done that she seems to like right now. But I think it all feeds into one of her biggest vulnerabilities, which is the trust issue. And like, maybe right. you're not following the Benghazi committee, but it does filter into the, into the news, and it adds to this perception that there's right. something untrustworthy. P Peter, that is the problem, is it not? That the Benghazi story and the email story in particular seem to reinforce fairly or unfairly a pre-existing narrative. Rules don't apply to the Clintons, we can't trust them, blah, blah, blah. And the longer this goes on, that can't be a good thing for her. Yeah, and we were sort of chatting about this backstage, that that, that is fundamentally her challenge. Amy and I were covering her in 08, how many different campaign slogans did she have? I know. I think during the last week in Iowa, she had a bus tour, and the, they changed the slogan the last week, and it was like, ready to lead, ready for change, right. time to pick it a president. It takes experience before. to make change. Yeah, it was like, a, yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, with, with Keystone, with TPP, um, there are just questions about her sincerity on these issues. But so what I was getting at with, with Amy just now with the messaging thing is, um, I, you know, this is another thing the Obama campaign was good at that I'm not convinced yeah. the Hillary campaign yeah. is good at right now, which is, like rising above the din and just looking at the at the end zone, right? And the Clinton campaign's first national TV buy, which might have been just a like a phantom cable buy or whatever, was about Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. and Benghazi. No, no real human being cares about that right now. Um, where, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying like they they seem to be very preoccupied from a messaging perspective right. with the process. Can I? They, yeah. I just want to pay. Um, Amy mentioned the what difference does it make moment, and I think that's actually, that explains why the Clinton campaign might want to put an ad about Kevin McCarthy and own that narrative. Because when she said what difference does it make, it was, an, it was in, in a hearing everyone thought she was doing incredibly well in. Uh, she looked like she was seriously worried about what had happened in Libya. Republicans looked like they were going after her. Uh, Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, who's probably going to lose next year, uh, kept goading her, and she got irritated and said, four Americans are dead, what difference does it make if it, be it was because of protests or something else? And so she was trying to say, why you guys keep obsessing over this instead of the dead people? And Republicans very quickly twisted it to, what difference does it make? Does she not care that people died under her watch? And right. I think they seem to be <laughs> hardened by lots of these campaigns. They do seem to know when something can be weaponized against them, even if it wasn't the intent. Even when she said she, uh, when right. she and Bill left the White House, they were dead broke. To the Clintons, that means Republicans had $60 million of dilatory lawsuits that bankrupted them, not for like, for like five minutes. They were going to make the money back. And they, they can't, I don't think they can believe that that has been turned into she doesn't care about poor people. Right, so I think that they're aware. If somebody like Kevin McCarthy blunders into something, just bury him. Just right. pour every sandbag and every anvil you have <laughs> on the guy because you've seen what happens if you let it slide. Right, Ryan. The authenticity issue that's come up with regard to Secretary Clinton is the reason that some people have been beating the drums for the vice president to get in, because what is the vice president but uh, inescapably, compulsively authentic, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, we were we were sort of all talking before this about what well what's the latest with Biden you know yeah. there was a moment there after the debate where people thought well the Biden trial balloon is now going to deflate because the Democrats have shown that they have one or two candidates that the party likes and then within 24 to 48 hours suddenly it was no the Biden drumbeat is back apparently he called the head of the International Firefighters Union yesterday talked for 20 minutes about his desire still to get in this race would the union support me kind of on and on. So what's going to happen with the vice president? I don't know. Most, you know. most people now in Washington looking at the tea leaves feel like it's, think it's more likely that he gets in than not. More likely. I, Gosh. I, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I, I do know that he has done everything he needs to do to make that final decision. Right. right. He's, 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 all the steps he's taking are steps that someone who's very seriously thinking about jumping in would, would, would do. 
I have never seen the case for Joe Biden uh, in, in this primary. I have always thought that he was basically the Democratic Party's insurance policy against catastrophic uh, loss. If something happened yeah, to Hillary he's, Clinton, he's Hubert Humphrey. Over, except he is the our vice, case still alive. He's, right. as, you know, he's the vice uh, nominee. Huh. Right? He's, the, right. he's the backup, which has been his role for eight years, and it's still his role in this primary. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, given what was going on with the emails and Benghazi and the Clinton Foundation finances, there, there have been all of these stir stories swirling around this year. Um, frankly, that's dominated coverage of Clinton, and I think he was smart to sort of do the due diligence to set himself up as the alternative if something happened to her. Um, now maybe, despite the fact that nothing has happened to her, he's decided that he's got, a, he's got a, a lane in this primary. But just to go back to our historical analogies of Democratic primaries, how is Joe Biden the Barack Obama? How does Joe Biden take down Hillary Clinton? What is the coalition that he can put together that eats into her base? Is it African Americans? Is it Latinos? Is it young voters? Um, Amtrak Am riders. Is it women? <laughs> none, of the group, none of the groups that he would need to steal from her are sort of natural allies of his. So I don't think the, the, the one group that you could argue would be those like white working class types in places like Youngstown and Davenport, but Scranton, Scranton, where well, he's from, aren't Democrats anymore. Who aren't Democrats anymore, yeah. right? So like in right. 08, and also and in 2010, they would send out Joe Biden to right. talk Based to on those voters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but those voters have now kind of firmly settled into the Republican Party. So in a primary, right. you know, to Ryan's point, what's the lane for him? Nobody, dis nobody uh, here, uh, anybody disagree with, with Ryan about Biden? No, in first show, show, show of hands, who thinks Biden's going to get in? in I, the end? I oh, I know, Amy, don't worry about it. <laughs> you can't predict Biden-Biden. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think Do you think he's like going to he get is. in? Yeah, I, I've, I've heard enough that makes me think he's going to get in. Uh, that, and I agree with Ryan. It hurts me as a Delawarean, but I just <laughs> do, I don't see the logic I don't actually see in his electoral history the proof that he's that good at reaching out to these people we say he's going to reach out to. Yeah. It's I feel bad for the guy, if you can feel bad for a guy this close to the presidency, because as soon as he's a candidate, it goes from, isn't this the most nicest, authentic guy, to, can you believe the gaffe he made? Yeah. Can you believe how 100%. this... 100%. That's the life cycle of these campaigns. Yeah. Like Martin O'Malley, for example, yeah. probably got more media in the like week before he announced, then he announced, and it was like... Look at this guy. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and, look, and that's kind of how Biden, the process works. Yeah. He's 74 years old, right? He has, he has known most of the Democratic vice presidents yeah. who went on to very easily capture their party's nomination. He'll be the first one that, that couldn't do it in, in, in uh, I used to know this stat, but like 53, 63 years or something. Since right? Barkley. He watched. Since yes, Barkley. Yeah. He, wa you know, he watched Al Gore easily do this, right? He, was, he, was, uh, he, he knew Mondale. He saw Mondale do it. And I think it just must stand. I saw how well that worked out. Yeah. Can't, yeah, they both lost, <laughs> right. but they still were able to win the nomination. And I think it must sting that he was sitting there, and all of the party's infrastructure and establishment right. was went to the Clintons, and that you know. Right. Hey, Amy, let me ask you. Can I let me say about okay. Biden, and then I want to come back and okay. ask about Republicans. Yeah. Oh, I was going to just say yeah. that for political junkies, it's worth going back and reading the Biden chapters and what it takes, and Richard totally. Ben Kramer, because this is a guy, and that's why we all love covering him. 1988 campaign. 1988 campaign. He does not make decisions based on conventional wisdom. Like, this is a guy who thought the plagiarism scandal that, you know, forced him to drop out of the 88 race happened so that he wouldn't die from this brain aneurysm. And he's, like, in his hospital room saying, now I understand why this plagiarism scandal happen. I wouldn't have been able to get to a hospital had I been in New Hampshire. I mean, he's a guy who very much thinks about things in terms of faith and God, and it's it's just not, I don't think it's based on conventional wisdom. You, you can't, so you can you say can't there's predict no path based on, based on normal Right. He's not, <coughs> I don't metrics. think he's looking right. at the path. I think here's a guy who's right. always wanted to be president. He has a 30% chance if he runs and a 0% chance if he doesn't run. Right. Now, to this question of Biden, you know, <laughs> Biden, Biden thinks, well, you know, I'm the logical next guy because this is how it typically goes. Yeah. There seems to be this flip in the race. I want to go to the Republicans. Yeah. Typically, what they say about these, uh, the two parties is Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. This year, it seems to be the reverse, yeah, totally. right? Democrats have fallen in line, which is to say, for the most part, for the most part <laughs> that have Hillary, and, and it's the Republicans who are letting passion, in, in some cases, inflamed passion, be their be their guide. Could anybody have foreseen really the Republican race at this it's, point turning turning out the way that it has, Amy? <laughs> The passion um, is... It's, it's Trump? I, I don't think Trump. I think the need for an insurgent who is speaking to an angry base that feels very much left behind 
Um, absolutely. Did I did I foresee that being a reality TV star? Not necessarily. <laughs> right. But or, this, or this reality TV star? Yeah. But I think I mean the single <clears throat> driving force on sort of both ends of the spectrum is income inequality. Um, we just did a poll that 67% of Americans believe only those at the very top have a chance to get ahead. And that's a fundamentally, you know, change into the American psyche that transcends party. And I'm sort of not surprised that someone's tapping into that anger, and whether it's anti-immigrant or... But there's always, Peter and then Ryan, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, historically, though, in the Republican primaries, there's, there's usually, like, 40, 45% of the primary is a sort of populist, very conservative, uh, you know, part of the party. And, I mean, Rick Santorum in 2012, at one point, hit 43% in the Republican polls against Romney. Um, and that's kind of always there. Uh, so that part doesn't surprise me, but the fact that Trump, since the end of July, has been able to sustain yeah. that bar, right. has, uh, you know, essentially flouted all the rules of politics right. that we know. Like, all of the things he's, the inflammatory things he's said that typically would right. create or another candidate have only sustained him. Right, that's the point. Every time we see him say something, hear him say something, see him do something, and we go, okay, this is the thing, finally. He seems not only not to go away, he seems to almost slightly rise. I mean, after everything that's happened, Ryan, last week, he was at 35% in South Carolina, 38% in Nevada, and in a field of 15 candidates, to have more than 30% of the vote is very significant. He's not going away. Yeah, you know, you, you were talking about Republicans falling in love, and, you know, historically in these open primaries on the Republican side, there are a lot of drunken white one-night stands before <laughs> they actually find you know, so, a mate. So, 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 so Donald so, Trump is like beer goggles? <laughs> is that what this is? No. And so if you, to, to follow up on what Peter was saying, that yeah. was the cycle. There was a sort of boom and bust cycle in 2012, right? We had five different front runners uh, in that race. Michelle Bachman, Rick Perry. You guys are probably familiar with him. Yeah, we heard uh, of him. Herman Cain. Uh, Herman Cain. Herman you guys Cain. remember Herm when Herman Cain was going to be president? Right. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the last man, man standing as the sort of conservative alternative was Rick Santorum, who surged very, very late in the campaign. Nobody at this point would have seen that coming. Right. The big difference is, uh, consistently through all of those ups and downs of the, of the sort of conservative populist uh, uh, boom cycle, you had Mitt Romney at 20 to 30 percent just sort of staying there. Right. And the, so the establishment had sort of coordinated on one person and it, the, the game was just to see who his conservative challenger would be. This cycle, it's not like that, right? So we have the, this, the populist outsiders uh, surging in the polls, but there's been no obvious right. establishment alternative. And that's the, that's the part of the process that just hasn't revealed itself yet. And I don't think we're going to know who that is until the voting starts. It's going to be a couple months. Uh, D Dave, in fact, to Ryan's point, those populist outsiders, the people who've never mm -hmm. been in elective office before and who are sitting at or near the top of the polls in every poll, Trump, Carson, and Fiorina are north of 50%. And if you add in Ted Cruz, who is the most outsidery insider in the race, yeah. you get to near 60%. Mm -hmm. That is a middle finger vote to the establishment of the Republican Party, 60%. Well, Cruz is the best of those uh, four articulating why that's possible, and it's because in 2010, 2004, the Republican voters who turned out and have been getting more conservative with each election because, as Amy was saying, people left the Democratic Party because they were conservative white Democrats and they finally, something about Barack Obama decided to make them switch to the Republican Party. I don't know what. Can't imagine what that would be. <laughs> and but, yeah. The parties got more conservative. They're, they're, they've won. They won the, the Senate and House in 2014. And as far as they can tell, nothing's really changing. Now, things are changing. If you wanted to write a a kind of wonky story with 10 clicks about all the things, the ways Republicans were able to cut into uh, the welfare state under Barack Obama, you could write something. But they were they were promised uh, jetpacks, right? They were pro they were promised that Long. Obamacare would be undone. They were promised that Planned Parenthood would be defunded. And I don't think it's unreasonable to uh, a Republican voter to be told for th 30 years that no one in politics can be trusted and, and is confident. To be told for for four years that if you that you need to elect these guys to disrupt Washington, and then be disappointed when they go for Donald Trump. Of course, they were told to go for someone like that, and you didn't give it to them. Uh, it, it's, I think right. it's an irresponsibility by all these levels of the party. Especially, I like going back to ads of the Chamber of Commerce, which is supposed to be the steward of, of Republican, modera uh, not moderation, but Republican establishment values has done. Whenever the Chamber of Commerce has gotten into a race to save their candidate, it's always, he's a true conservative. He's going to fight Barack Obama. He's, and they've, they've just, 
let the tantrum continue into the part where, into this point where they can't control it. I think that's what right. explains. And, and Peter, all in that. fact, what yeah. happened to Speaker Boehner is in some ways the other half of this whole, right? Mm -hmm. That the same people who Dave is saying are disappointed in in Republicans who claim to be conservative and ultimately can't deliver on what they promised, that's really ultimately what's turned the U.S. House upside down. Y yeah, and it's completely non-functional at this point for, for right. the Republicans. Right. Um, but one point, just to follow up on what you said, looking at the calendar for Republicans next year, um, and as the establishment figures out who the, their standard bearer is going to be, it's not going to be easy for the establishment. After the first four states, typically, you know, you coalesce Michigan, around somebody. Florida. Look at, yeah, but there are also lots of, cons there's big expensive states, first of all, that you've got to spend a lot of money in, but Arkansas, Alabama, caucuses in places like Maine and Colorado, which are much, the, the caucuses are conservative. So if you emerge from the conservative lane, like perhaps yeah. Ted Cruz, right, and you come to Texas and you go through the South, you're in the game right. all the way through April. Isn't that the yeah. Cruz, yeah. isn't, just to speak to, uh, to Cruz for a second, isn't that the Cruz strategy? Whatever happens in a dislocation sense, outcome of the first four, Amy, the first four races, you could have four different Republican winners in those first four races, conceivably. Yeah. You hit March 1st, the SEC primary, Texas plus the other southern states. Isn't Cruz positioned to do well and to have a path forward of some sort at that point? Well, he certainly has, Super PAC certainly has the money, and he yeah. seems like he's sort of laying low and allowing for that right. to happen. Yeah. Um, and, and tying yeah. himself to Donald Trump. Right. And, and becoming and, and the assumption that if those people at the top collapse, exactly. he's the logical he, inheritor of their vote. That he he's becomes the Rick Santorum of the race. It's the right. last right. conservative populist standing he has this, against this nice, Jabba Rubio. This nice Bond villain quality of explaining exactly how it's going to work. He I mean, has this nice said, Bond villain. On, Ted Cruz is a Bond he's villain. He's not a Bond villain. He has a Bond villain quality of explaining exactly how the lasers are going to hit the moon base, etc. He's said on the record several times, I'm being very nice to Donald Trump because when he inevitably collapses, it's going to be great for my campaign. And we all nod and write it down. And I haven't seen that one be that blatant about the plan. But the plan makes perfect sense. And to accentuate what Peter was saying, it used to be you come out of these first four and then maybe Michigan or Florida bail you out. Uh, I, don't, I, would, I don't think Jeb Bush is going to make the Florida primary. I think he just bombs out before that, gets destroyed wow. in the SEC primary. Write that well, one down. Well, write that one right. down. Yeah. Michael is predicting, actually. Yeah. Right. Well, let's get to Jeb Bush. So, Ryan, I, I have the benefit of, of, of having an advanced look at a long piece about Jeb Bush that Ryan has written that runs in the New Yorker this week. So you're my Jeb Bush explainer. What the hell happened to Jeb Bush? <laughs> Past tense. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. What happened to him? Um, I think a couple of things. One, he has been out of politics for a really long time. Um, he's been in the private sector, and I think he has missed um, what the changes in the media that have happened since 2007 when he was running. Um, when you go and watch his events or see him out there campaigning, there's a certain um, eye-rolling quality to what's going on around him, that he can't believe he has to deal with all this crap. And if you're going to run for president, you know, that's like complaining. Dealing about with crap is job <laughs> number one, right, if you're, if you're running for president. <laughs> so that's one. Two, what he, the other thing he missed, of course, since 2007 is some pretty dramatic changes in the Republican Party, which is kind of head-scratchingly odd that he didn't have more of a, of a sense of where conservatives had moved since, since he last ran. Um, and he hasn't been able to overcome the obvious vulnerabilities that he started with on the big issues that, that his party cares about, immigration, education. Um, and then, uh, then probably to me, the biggest and most obvious factor that he hasn't been able to overcome and perhaps never will is his last name. <laughs> And, that was know, supposed to be a, a, an asset. And so, what, yeah, one example in the piece that I wrote about this week, which is mostly just about Bush and foreign policy, he started the race with this quote about how he's going to be his own man on foreign policy and about how you have to be willing to lose the primary to win the general election, right? That was the strategic box any candidate was in. And he hasn't been able to overcome either of those things. He's gradually been pushed on foreign policy to be more and more like his brother as the Middle East has sort of become uh, uh, more inflamed and as he's criticized Obama more, he's sort of been pushed into a much more hawkish, much more uh, neoconservative foreign policy. I think the big first example of this is when he threw Jim Baker under the bus. I don't know if you guys are all familiar with the story, but he originally put out a list of his foreign policy advisors. He tried to make it a big tent list with people from his dad's administration and his brother's administration. One of the names on the list was Jim Baker, 
classic realist. Secretary. Grassroots went crazy to think that Jim Baker was going to be back in circulation. I don't know if it was the grassroots, but well, it was definitely the, the foreign policy um, thinking, the, the foreign policy intellectuals, yeah. and a lot of the donors that Jeb was was uh, wooing do not like Jim Baker. They think he's anti-Israel, and they think he's too much of a realist. Um, and at one point, <laughs> and I, I, I don't Which say it's pejorative to them. <laughs> to them, that's to a pejorative term. Else. And at one point, there's this there's this famous meeting that, uh, that that David and CNN both reported on, where Jeb actually is in front of these donors and says, and the guy who started the race saying, "I'm going to be my own man." And look, I even put Jim Baker on my list. A few months later, he's in front of this crowd, and he says. And they say, what about this Jim Baker guy? Why is he one of your advisors? And he said, don't worry. The person I listen to on foreign policy or for advice about the Middle East is George W. Bush. So I think that like sort of full circle that he's had to. Suddenly we come back. Yeah, and now, and of course, this week, Trump is taking full advantage of this. I think Trump knows exactly what he's doing, talking about 9-11 and George W. Bush. He's trying to push Jeb into the corner of standing up and saying, I'm not that different than my brother, which is not a good place for Jeb right, to be. Right, and Peter, what, 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 Ryan is refer what Ryan's yeah. referring to is Donald Trump said either exactly or close to exactly, George W. Bush was president on 9-11, right? That's a factual statement. Yeah. I, and we were talk, just talking about this, and like, I think Dave agrees. Like that, in in the in the pantheon of uh, egregious, insane things Donald Trump has said, that one is not one of them. Pretty far down the <laughs> yeah. list. George Bush was, he president, was president on 9/11. Um, right. I've actually seen a fact check of this, where somebody went, somebody took calendars and a photo of Bush being sworn in, and is like, right. according to this evidence. P Politifact <laughs> says mostly true. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But wait, but mostly, but, mostly true. But. But <laughs> I've spent some time with him in New Hampshire recently, and this is uh, Trump. Sorry, with with yeah. Jeb. Jeb! Exclamation point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, the least appropriate exclamation point in history. Okay. In the history of branding, right. the most yeah. needed. I can go off on a tangent about this. Like again, talking about what's your message in this environment. Like that's why Bernie Sanders and, and Trump are doing well. Like it's about the either the issues or the situation, and it's not about you necessarily. Um, but in New Hampshire, which has the, you know, you could argue some of the most engaged voters in the country, you know, you go to a town hall with Jeb and, and it just comes up, how are you different from your brother? And people don't know who Jeb exclamation point is or why that's a good thing. And Jeb sort of assume, how could you, how dare you not know about my conservative record right. in Florida? And, you know, I think that that bothers him. I think that looking at the polls, Jeb Bush is currently what, like 6% in the polls? Um, how much of that is I'm for Jeb, and how much of that is just like Bush? I know that name, yeah. which is bad news for him, right? Like maybe his numbers are lower. No, than that's that. what makes you right. If you have a hundred percent name ID and you're at six percent in the polls, that is is trouble. That, that's your problem, yeah. Amy. The thought from some people who are Jeb guys, they'll acknowledge, well, it's not going well now, but all this craziness into race is surely going to settle, and he'll still be around. He has the money. Right. He's Jeb Bush after all, and so. Wait out this early part. We're in the entertainment phase, is what the Texas Speaker of the House said to me yesterday. Right. The he's, who's, a, by the way, a Jeb Bush guy. He said, we're in the entertainment phase of the race. And in the end, you know, the implication is he'll still be standing. Oh, yeah. I've heard people say, you know, Trump is just a summer fling. And I have to say, it's mid-October. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know? uh, I mean, he is building the infrastructure. He's cut back on some staff salaries. But there wasn't real evidence in the la latest ra uh, round of fundraising numbers that people aren't giving to him. He still had a decent haul. I mean, I was just going to say on the George W. question is it's a tricky proposition. I recently saw Bill Clinton and George W. Bush at a joint event. And I was reminded of his political skills. I mean, he was funny and charming and you just thought oh your brother needs just a little of that swagger like and they're they're talking about right. using george w uh, to campaign in south carolina and other places and so while the foreign policy record might be a quagmire for for jeb it's like he kind of does need his brother's charisma and he still has a lot of affection in the republican party base the base that does not like jeb jeb has now said two or three times in interviews in public settings when asked tell us something that's surprising about you his answer is I'm an introvert, which is like here. here let me tee this up. This is up for you. Like here's a softball. I answer this question. He says yeah. I'm an introvert. It's the opposite of of, of W. There, Clearly, he has he has the same kind of mannerisms. He needs a little more not, Texas, a little less. Yeah, yeah. a little less. Uh, <laughs> Dave. So what happens just to sort of funnel this down to a to a fine point? What happens in a conversation like this inevitably mm -hmm. is people go. 
da, 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 and then they go, Rubio. Right. <laughs> is, that the, is that what we're looking at here? I've been, I've been <laughs> bullish on him for the whole time he's been in the conversation. I still was in South Carolina two weeks ago, Iowa uh, this week, and he's still in that little three or four name uh, quiz people tell, tell themselves. So you'll ask what, who they like. Ruby always makes it in. Sometimes they'll throw in Jindal in Iowa. Sometimes they'll throw in Kasich in New Hampshire. But Rubio makes it in. He's not offended anybody yet. And I think just be because of the way that the campaign has been covered, it, he's gotten a little bit of negative attention, but not much. And someone like Santorum benefited from this, too. There was no real coverage of the downsides until he had a chance to prove himself and surge and win something. I, I can see. I, I, I don't know if he can survive that. But I, if, I was his, if I worked for him, I'd be very optimistic by the fact that Jeb Bush's campaign kind of foolishly tangled with him this week. They didn't respond very well, but they gave away the, the, that instead of being made irrelevant by Bush's money, Rubio has remained more popular, has a better story. Right. Uh, is somebody that, if, if you're a Republican voter, the idea of running Rubio, a 40-something Hispanic guy against Hillary Clinton, who, who is older than, than in mid-40s, who represents I think the Washington establishment in kind of the crude terms. The, the idea is very exciting, the same way Obama was exciting in 2007. I've, that's always been my, like, right. my, well, my, my Rubio's, brain view of this. Rubio's announcement, so his announcement speech, which I thought of the Republican candidates yeah. was the best. Well, look, he you, said expressly, uh, yesterday is gone and it's not coming back. He was yeah. directly tapping into what Davis talked about. Well, look, if you were to build a Republican nominee in a lab, what are the things you would like throw in there? Yeah. You're right, all right, let's find a big swing state that we need to win. All right, Florida. All right, what ethnicity are we going to make this person? Okay, we really <laughs> need to win 30, 40% of the Hispanic vote. Right. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton, she's kind of old, yesterday's news. Maybe he could be young. Young. Right? Right. Um, you just you go, go down the list. And, and, that's why and, he, and really conservative. Not too but, conservative, but really conservative. Enough that the, right. the sort of three or four pieces of the Republican coalition, nobody would sort of veto Marco Rubio. Right, check, he's, check, he's, check, check. He's good, he's, he's good enough. Right. Um, so on paper, he's always been, you know, the sort of obvious, mm -hmm. the obvious nominee, and he's running this sort of, you know, like turtle-like race, not worrying about, you know, surging in the polls, sort of slow and steady. I think they intentionally um, don't yeah. want to surge. In well, because it's different yeah. than Obama race, where Hillary was so dominant that you need to prove yourself with mega, with megaphone race, right. as Obama did. Bush is so weak and the field is so scattered that you can you can right. kind of. There's a little bit more of assumption, an assumption that the, the yeah. top contenders will will collapse on their own. Now, right. Maybe that. And he's avoiding well. scrutiny. I mean, the toughest story we've done was about his wife's speeding tickets. I mean, he's just sort of under the right. radar. And and and, and, what, and, what, and what did he say about that? He said the same thing that Hillary said. Huh, the New York Times. They fundraise <laughs> it. They fundraise. Right. They fundraise. Off, they they fundraise it. off yeah. of you guys all the time. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. He also the the speedboat story. The luxury speedboat. That was one of the first times I said beyond everything that. Ryan was saying yeah. where he's good on paper. He jujitsu this story about uh, the speedboat he owned by making fun of the New York Times for thinking, oh, that's supposed to mean I'm rich? That's supposed to mean I'm crooked? That I have this little fishing boat I use? And I saw him win over these rooms. It's, it's not yeah. that, I mean, no offense to either of our papers. It's not that hard to win over a room. Donald Trump will literally po point the audience and then point to the press and make them boo us. Bernie, <laughs> loves, Bernie loves to take on the press. Why, this is, Bernie's like, Bernie takes on the press. So, that's why those applause at the start were so self-affirming. In, like in like a larger, uh, I see him a larger way where he'll say that we focus on the wrong things. Whereas, but Trump never yeah. gets off the phone with us, too. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like a wink. Yeah. He'll, like, attack the press and then call call you after and say, It's yeah. like but, professional but, wrestling, which but Rubio, is the world so he comes a lot from. Of, yeah. You know, so, it's just a fake enemy. Rubio has offended conservatives in a couple of things, but uh, we saw in 2012, Newt Gingrich, who also is very friendly with the press, uh, what, what him South Carolina, everyone will say this in the state now, is that he just destroyed, Andrew, uh, it wasn't Anderson Cooper, it was John King in the CNN debate when, it, when he asked about his affair. And that was what I saw. Rubio attacking the media for, for its coverage of him is the sort of thing you can, you can get away with a lot of sins in your record if you're a conservative and you hit the media really hard. And it, I'm saying this against interest, it totally party. works. Yeah. It's very tribal, it, it, it transcends does, it does what work. your record is. So let, let, me, let me fast, we're gonna go to questions in a little bit. I wanna jump ahead to the general. We don't know who the nominees of the two parties are gonna be, but let me just, for purposes of the frame around this, say Hillary's the nominee of the Democratic Party and we're gonna determine who the nominee of the Republican Party is, but it's not gonna be Trump, it's gonna be somebody who is more embraced or acceptable to the establishment, whoever that ends up, ends up being. Two, two questions. So whatever antipathy there may be, Dave, that you alluded to in the polls to Secretary Clinton, that race that is at the baked into that poll is basically Hillary versus not Hillary. 
-hmm. It's going to become at some point Hillary versus somebody. Then it becomes not a referendum on Hillary, but a choice. Does she benefit from being in a choice election as opposed to a referendum election in the end? And will that be a key driver of the narrative in November? I think so, just because of a belief that I think was borne out recently that Democrats start the election with a country that basically wants to vote for a Democratic president. In midterms, the electorate turns out wants to vote for Republicans for Congress, and maybe in some cases it's gerrymanders that they have to. Yeah. Uh, the country starts out with, you know, California want to go for them, Illinois going for them, and then Ohio kind of on the on the bubble, Florida on the bubble, but less and less every year. So I think it's if it's a referendum between competent Democrat and Republican, then that's that's a good election for them. She, she, yeah, yeah. And, the, and the Clinton campaign, uh, as opposed to last time, is mm -hmm. so. Le le Leaning in, sorry, so hard into the, the fact that she'd be a woman, the first woman president. Yeah. The, the identity politics of, of the Democratic Party right. are extremely valuable for them. Um, well, at the, begin at the beginning, it seemed like, at the beginning, it seemed like they were not going to make that such a focus of it. But the debate, I, I must have heard her talk about the fact that she would make history a couple, three, four times. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think they were always going to in this because yeah. 2008, she was very much the strong commander in chief. Her yeah. chief strategist said no one wants the first mama in the White House. You know, they very much did not play up gender. And so I think there was an early decision to play it Let, up let's this do time. That. I mean, so you, you agree that if it's her versus a Republican, that this the cast of this race becomes more of a choice? I mean, her campaign cannot wait until there is a personified opponent to compare her to. And I think back 88, George H.W. was sort of floundering around, didn't have a message. And then as soon as he could take Mike Dukakis down, it was his race. I think they're just waiting to compare her to a Republican. And, uh, and, you know. and that's what was so reassuring for a lot of Democrats about the debate was that you imagine her on the, in the, the general election, in October, yeah. yeah, she, you know. She kept getting it back to Republicans, too. She was like, oh, we, we can right. have our disagreements on this stage, right. but. As opposed to the Republicans, Ryan, who in their debates have been attacking each other, mm -hmm. in the Democratic debate, at least in the case of Secretary Clinton, she was focused on Republicans. She was focused on Republicans partly because I think she doesn't, that, that suggests she doesn't see Bernie Sanders quite as, as a threat, as a, as a big a threat as, as maybe the rest of us, or maybe some of the commentaries suggest. Right. You agree she's but, helped by having an eventual person to, to be compared to? Yeah, and I think if, just to go back to her opponents, I wrote this in a tweet, and one of the things you learn as a journalist is never to tweet. Never tweet. Never tweet. Never tweet. <laughs> and I got a lot of blowback. But I, you know, I said <laughs> after the debate, I said Hillary Clinton won because all of her opponents are terrible. And, <laughs> and when I'm. You're right so, for the New York. I bet the Bernie contingent love that. And what, yeah. what I meant by that's that, that's not as quite as bad as what the staff of the New York Times tweets, but it's. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's too soon. Another inside joke. Too soon. I realized that. Just what I meant like is the really quality of her competition is not that high because most of the top tier Democrats decided not to run, and right. she did what 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 most very very strong candidates do in a primary. They scare the competition out, and you win the race by not having right. any, any competition. And I think if, if she wins, she'll have won this in 2014, not 2016. So the second half of the conversation about the no November election is the electoral map. Republicans think they have a path to victory. Um, we like to say math beats path. If you look at the math of the electoral map, the assumption is, and, and again, we can challenge this assumption, but the assumption is going into any election of late, the Democrats begin with 242 electoral votes. Barring something unforeseen, of course, they have to get to 271. Well, Florida has 29. 242 plus 29 is conveniently 271, but there are plenty of routes there to 271, even if you leave Florida off. Uh, Paul Begala, Mark McKinnon, Matthew Dowd were here at the festival earlier in the week, and what they said was, this is really the, 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 the uh, what do you call it, the retaining wall, or, or this is basically the firewall for Hillary or for any other Democrat, is that they go in with 242. There are any number of ways to get there. The electoral map is really heavily favoring the Democrats in this race, barring something unforeseen. I, I, can I just say one, one yeah. quick thing? I think that's overstated a little bit. I think the big thing where you got to take some points off for the Democrats is trying to win a third term, right? Historically, that's very, very difficult. George H.W. Bush is the exception. Yeah. For a long time, right to that. Right, so that's okay. that's the one thing. And the second thing, the, the most important driver of next year's election will be the economy. And every week we seem to get mixed data about where where that's going, and that'll be the most important thing. But but so do you challenge the idea that the map is favorable to Democrats? It's favorable, but I don't yet buy that the Obama coalition is an enduring coalition for Democrats. Right? We've only had two 
cases, and it was a, this very different candidate for Barack Obama. And so I don't, I don't, right. we don't know yet if but that's translatable. Amy, Amy to her. come back to the first question I asked you, though. So, what was the so-called coalition of the ascendant, Ron Brownstein's construction? African Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanics, women, gays, and lesbians, young people. Those were the verticals that ultimately gravitated up to Obama that helped him win in 2012. Stay with Latinos for a second. What was she doing in San Antonio? Latino outreach. It is sometimes said that if Bill Clinton was the first black president, Hillary would be the first Hispanic president, right? <laughs> that, that, that her relationship with the Latino community is such that possibly, at least in that vertical, there is a natural gravitation over to her in the way that Latinos supported Obama. Do you think she does worse with Latinos? No, I fall? think she has strong support among yeah. Latinos. I think there's mixed uh, data on whether Latino, Latinos don't vote in the same number that the blacks Oh, we did. know that here. And, in white, right. <laughs> and I think that there is, I Not think news. the Democrats are sort of presumptuous in thinking, if only Latinos voted, they would vote for a Democrat. Well, yeah, I don't know. I think it's interesting Paul Begala is always talking about the map because he was one of the guys who in, who in 91, when everybody said, look at the map, a Democrat cannot win the presidency. You know, he came along with a centrist guy named Bill Clinton and they won the South. And so I think... This yeah. And this ain't that. <laughs> well, no, but I think that there are a lot of, uh, you know, if Latinos only vote, they'll vote Democrat, I think is a presumption. I don't know what, you know, what Rubio, appeal, his appeal would be. And so right. I do think, she, I mean, she is doing early outreach. She's got a lot of big endorsements, and she has a lot of affection in that community. Peter. I'm interested in, in the, the young people part of that puzzle. Um, Ann Cornblatt wrote, wrote an interesting book after the 08 campaign about how women voters behaved and approached Hillary. And... She said, and I noticed this too, um, younger women didn't see the notion of a Hillary presidency as, as big a deal as, as older women. Um, this is not informed by data in any way. This is just anecdotal. But in my travels and, and to early states, it seems that young people are, um, you know, maybe they still like Obama, but sort of not ready to just embrace the Democratic Party reflexively, yeah. would be open to new choices, do see Hillary Clinton as old news. Um, I'm just sort of interested to see how the, how the generational dynamic plays out if she's the nominee. But well, Dave, Dave, okay, yeah. Amy, Amy and then let me come to Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. uh, you know, somebody said talking about the women vote is like talking about the Jewish vote in Israel. Like you can just, <laughs> you know, within that, there are so, you have so many ways to slice and dice the yeah. women vote. Yeah. And I do think when you talk to young women, you're like, aren't you excited about electing the first woman president? They're like, well, we're going to do that. You know, there's much less of like an urgency. They're like, well, of course they're, we're going to They're not gasping president. at the Why prospect Why does it have to be it? that woman? And right. so there is a lot of... Dave, again, I want to come back for a second to Ted Cruz, again, Texas, we are pandering in that respect to <laughs> an audience that is disproportionately, disproportionately interested in, in Ted Cruz. Um, let's, assume, let's assume that the, that the Republicans don't nominate as their candidate against, against assumed Hillary in the fall a more established Republican. Let's assume that the argument that the Cruz people have made is the argument that prevails. Mm -hmm. We nominated two fake conservatives in each of the last two elections. Had that work out for us? Not well. So rather than doing the thing that we always seem to do, let's Doug Flutie this election. Let's put the ball in the end zone. High risk, high reward. Let's nominate a full-throated conservative because we can't do worse. Let's see if maybe by doing so we activate a bunch of people who don't normally turn out or somehow we, we, we change the map. Is there an argument for that and would that be potentially a different narrative strain for the fall? Well, he, there's a line he uses that I think he's, he's probably used at this festival, which is if it took if it took Jimmy Carter to give us Ronald Reagan, imagine what we'll get after Barack Obama. I've, I've literally heard him say that since 2009 or something when he was when he was thinking about running for AG. Uh, that is the argument that the media gets it wrong. They think that the the, the electorate cares so much about ideology that he's that somebody like him would be out of bounds for them. But no, if, if it boils down to a choice election and they're tired of the Democrats running things and they'll vote even for him, I don't quite get that because. Sometimes, I've even met Donald Trump voters. I've covered these massive Trump rallies. They're big and exhausting, and again, you get heckled by the entire crowd. <laughs> right. But if you burrow into policy, some of them kind of don't like Washington because it doesn't work. And there really is an argument there that it, the, the guy saying, I'm going to blow up everything, everything I've done in the, in the Senate is only stimmied because people don't listen to me, that is not a great argument to carry in with the voter who just thinks that the system is, is, is broken in, in, in inquit ways. They don't, these voters don't always just look down a list of policies and say, yes, right, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm conservative. And I feel like he would give away some of those people. You kind of saw a hint at this when uh, Hillary made a joke about her enemies in the debate, and Iranians and Republicans. And you saw some of the smarter conservative pundits saying, what a gaffe, that's going to be horrible with the general, electorate, uh, general election electorate. They're going to use that, that she said Republicans are enemies. Right. I think 
that's all Cruz says. <laughs> like his enemies are on the, the the middle of the Republican Party and on the left, and people who cut him off in traffic. And like he's he's very. His argument is that he's going to fight all the time. I don't actually think that sells. Even Reagan in 80 was less, I'm going to fight. It was more specific ways to fix your economic situation, which actually don't play anymore because taxes aren't high enough and right. you know, interest rates aren't, aren't, aren't high. Let's, uh, let's take a couple of questions from the audience. If you've got questions lined up, we'll use as much time as we have. We'll probably go a little bit longer than 10 o'clock, but not too much because we want to respect everybody's time and bring on our last speaker of the festival. Ma'am, go ahead. Please no speeches is my prayer to, uh, uh, my prayer for the day here in Politics Church. Please no speeches. Go ahead. I'm Rebecca Belmetro, and I'm running for State Board of Education. And I wanted to know, I went to hear uh, Lawrence Lessig, and uh, he was not uh, invited to the Democratic uh, debates, but he has a very important point about uh, the system being broken by the influence of money on politics. And I was wondering if the entertainment factor that you mentioned might be upped by the entrance of Joe Biden and uh, Lawrence Lessig into the race. But right. uh, could that happen given the whatever well, uh, it is? Ryan, why are, why are we being made to feel the chafe in these debates to have Lincoln <laughs> Chafee be there, but not Lawrence Lessig? You know, it's a good question. I mean, they're, 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 for the networks that run these debates, they have to have some rules or criteria and nothing is going, no set of rules is going to please everyone. Um, and I think they err on the side of letting, well, one, it's driven mostly by polls, right? Um, and um, I don't know. I don't know why Lawrence You can, Lessig, you can he, make an he, argument he, that he's, he's running a campaign and Jim Webb is not. I mean, Jim Webb doesn't no. do I had to be reminded that yeah. Jim Webb was still in the campaign when he walked out on that stage. But Lessig, 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 I actually, I disagree fundamentally, honestly, with how the networks have handled the debate criteria. Yeah. Um, I think it's been a disservice to the process. I think people like Governor Perry um, were killed by it, honestly, the cycle. Uh, Lessig has spent time in New Hampshire, not just this year, the last two years. He's talking about campaign finance reform in New Hampshire, where it's really potent. He's raised uh, a decent amount of money uh, oh, and is actually doing events. And you could argue, again, that Jim Webb and Lincoln, that CNN said Joe Biden could be in the bait if he wanted to, <laughs> but they're not going to let the guy in who's, who's actually already running. running. Who's actually running. You know. Sir. Hi. So I'm a student here at UT Austin. And in that context, one argument I've heard thrown around a lot is that someone like a Bernie Sanders could win the primary because he'd be able to turn out voters such as college students who wouldn't normally be driven to vote. Right. So, and in that context, they may not be asked poll questions either. So to what extent do you buy into that argument? Is, is there an unseen, sand, is there Sanders-mentum basically on college campuses that maybe the polls, Amy, are not uh, I mean, he has huge momentum among young people, and he's really mobilized the social media army. I don't really see a path if he cannot win minorities, blacks in South Carolina, Latinos in Nevada, um, even with all the support he has on college campuses. So very, very, very possibly, we alluded to this earlier, he could win Iowa, he could win New Hampshire, yeah. he could win both. But that would not necessarily be dispositive in terms of the outcome of this I also, race. I don't right. think it's good for him that we already are talking about him winning. It's better if you sneak up and win one of these, like Gary, Gary Hart uh, in New Hampshire in, in 1984. Yeah. We've already kind of baked in that Hillary's an underdog in New Hampshire, which is crazy. That was not her what any of us were thinking. Her loves that, low yeah. expectations. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. The fact it's that we're already thinking. It's actually good for her. She right? could, oh, yeah. or she, if she loses New Hampshire by merely one point, we're going to like, wow, Clinton really put it together. She this gets person the, who never should have lost the The comeback kid. When, did, when have we Completely. heard that before, so, right? I, I, yeah. I know, but that's, you, yeah. could, you could do a whole other panel on, on polling, honestly, yeah. for an entire day. Yeah. But he raises an interesting point, which is, and, and spending the, this year in, heavily in the digital space at Snapchat, and like, uh, the young people do not use landlines. They just don't. And so like the poll, the polling industry, even, and we, we talk about this every cycle, how do you reach people who don't have landlines? I mean, it's becoming a, a serious issue for pollsters. People who pay for polls are now having to, you know, have double their expenditures to pay for cell phone polling because it's that much more expensive. Um, so I don't know if polls are missing young people, but it's also something that like I wouldn't necessarily rule out. Mm -hmm. Sir. Michael Fetland from Houston. I actually ran for U.S. Senate last year and obviously did not get elected. <laughs> My question is two. One is Julian Castro will be here. There's some talk about him potentially being Hillary's VP. Would like your opinion on that. 
And two part is what do you think how it would play out if someone like Cruz or Rubio did become the nominee? Right, uh, so, uh, Secretary Castro is just about 10 feet behind you, so. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great American. I, I, I'm more if if you'd like, I can Castro bring him on stage so you can say there. it directly <laughs> to his face. But, um, <laughs> you want to give us your kind of like Game show speed round, quick take on the running mate stuff. That may have to be the last question. Go ahead. Castro or Kane, I think will be the running Castro mate. Castro or Kane? I gotta find out what the current Veep is doing before I start thinking before, about it. Before we know whether Biden's in the race. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Richmond guy, so I, I, Tim Kane is, I, I think, actually has a lot of untold. Virginia homie is yeah. your choice. But I just said the Castro, both of the Castros have, um, both here and, and in Washington over the last few years, um, shown themselves to be extremely capable both at, at policy and at the sort of political process and, and media networking. Right. Uh, yeah. The number one rule for picking a Veep is make sure it's someone who is competent and can be president of the United States immediately and don't game it out about who's going to win this state or this ethnic group. Right. And so if Julian Castro or whoever is seen as that kind of leader, great choice. If not, not so great. But the, the whole do it for, to win a swing state, do it to win right. this group. It, one, it doesn't work because the American people don't right. vote based on the VP, and two, it's a huge disservice if you're, if right. you're going to choose McCain someone. McCain thought yeah. Palin would win him a bunch of wim loyal women who supported Hillary. Didn't exactly Not happen. So All right. And Paul Ryan um, in Wisconsin. Week. Yeah. <laughs> We're a little past 10. We do have to keep to the schedule. My apologies to the people who didn't get to ask their questions. God, I love this panel. Ryan Lizza, Peter Hamby, Amy Chesick, and Dave Weigel. Thank you all. We'll be back in 15 minutes.